Our text is verse 43 through 54. And before we engage God's word, if you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we engage your word, open our hearts by your spirit. Speak to us through your word. Teach us, Lord. Bring us into fellowship with Christ. Help us to mix faith with these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Eugene Peterson, who you may recognize his name as the translator of The Message, which is a translation of the Bible, somewhere between a translation and a paraphrase, at least in modern English. And um, he talks about the travesty that has occurred in some of our modern reading of the Bible in which we've, we've squeezed all the imaginative stuff right out of it, right out of Scripture. And <clears throat> uh, last week in the, the story of the woman at the well, if you were here, you'll probably recall that we breathed in the imaginative stuff uh, that, as Peterson puts it, uh, we allowed some ambiguity to paint with impressionist strokes and saw the inspired proverbial forest and not just the inspired uh, trees of the text. Sometimes you have to back up and see the forest and not just the details of the trees. And so just to give a a, a brief um, summary of last week so that we can then engage from that point forward. Beginning at the end of John chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is three times referred to as the bridegroom. In fact, three times referred to as the bridegroom in one verse. And the people coming to him are called the bride. And we saw that although... Back in chapter 2, when Jesus was at a wedding in Cana, he tells his mom, uh, my hour has not yet come. However, in chapter 4, verse 23, he says the hour is now is. Okay, so something has changed. Something had shifted in terms of the timing and what was going on. And therefore, he had some things that he must do now that the time has begun to change. Necessity compels him, requires him to go from Judea to Galilee by way of Samaria. The the story of the bridegroom then follows the pattern as we looked at last week of a find a wife at a well story. uh, A fairly common kind of story. We see them in the Old Testament. You have uh, the story of how Isaac got his wife Rebekah, Jacob got his wife Rachel, and then Moses and his wife as well. The way those stories go, they follow a familiar pattern. It's, it's like this. The bachelor goes to a well, meets a woman. One of them gives the other something to drink. In the case of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, he gives her living water. The woman goes back home to tell everyone about him. They all come to meet him, and then there's a wedding, which in the case of Jesus, and uh, the well is, is demonstrated as Jesus abides or remains with the people of Samaria for an extended period of time, two days there. The story behind the story is about a woman who, having failed six times to find a husband who could meet the longing of her soul in a lasting way, she found a husband in Jesus who is the well of living water. Last week we examined one key Old Testament passage in which living water is referred to. Does this idea that Jesus introduces of living water, does it have an Old Testament background? And we we saw that in Ezekiel 47, it indeed does. And 
that it comes from the new temple that would be built. And consistent with John's theology, Jesus is really declaring himself to be the new temple that God is directing our attention to. And from him flows living water. But it should also be noted that that living water is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 2. In a context that mentions both God's people as his bride and as a harvest. In fact, as the first fruits of a worldwide harvest. Both of those themes, which we find in John 4 that we looked at last week, are actually found in Jeremiah, a text we didn't look at. In chapter 2, in verse 13, it reads as follows. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. And the, the one talking, the me, is Yahweh. The spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The Samaritan woman had dug broken cisterns, and they could not hold water. But now Christ has drawn her to himself and revealed himself to her and given her living water, as we saw last week. Jesus, the groom, the one pursuing his bride, he is the spring of living water. He is Yahweh himself. Jesus in John 4, by saying that he has that living water, is declaring himself to be God. The only source of water by which we will never thirst. But who makes up this bride? We, we, we ended last week, you know, at, at the end of that story, Jesus has gone to, to pursue his bride. Who, who makes up this bride that Christ is marrying? Who is included in the harvest that he gathers? How do we become part of the harvest, the bride? And what does this marriage look like in practice? What we'll find in our text is that being the bride of Jesus is about being a people in a relationship of faith with Jesus. Regardless of one's heritage, regardless of one's nationality, and we'll be in a relationship of faith with Jesus through prayer and his word. So let's dive in and look freshly at the account of the royal official and his dying son. I have three headings today under which I'll be uh, sharing this text. The first is Jesus stops in Cana. The second is a man from Capernaum goes to Cana. And the third is Jesus' word goes to Capernaum. So we'll be looking at that. And let's begin in John 4, verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country or his hometown, depending on how that should be read. We'll, we'll look at that. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. <clears throat> if after the two days that he spent in Samaria with the Samaritans, remaining with them, abiding with them. That's where we ended last week. If after the two days, Jesus left for Galilee, then what day is it that he leaves for Galilee? It's the third day. And where he lands, as we'll see in a moment, when he leaves, he's going to Cana. You say, why do you bring that up? Well, because... Back in chapter 2, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, that when Jesus went to Cana there, there was a wedding in Cana on the third day. And the third day in the book, Gospel of John, or any of the gospel, reminds us of what? 
the resurrection. The time has come for Jesus to pursue his bride, according to chapter 4, verse 23. For true worship to take place. Ultimately, that means that Jesus is headed to more than Samaria and Galilee. Jesus is headed to more than Cana. Jesus is headed to the cross and to the tomb and to the resurrection and to the, his ascension at the right hand of God. You see, because that's what it's going to take to purchase his bride for himself. To lay down his life for his bride. So John wants these subtle themes to be in our minds as we, we read this text. Recall from last week that you know, Jesus, this, this journey that he's on right now began when he was at Jerusalem. And in chapter 2, he went from Cana and Galilee down uh, through, through Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And then, and then at the, starting at the end of chapter 2, he began in Jerusalem, then Judea. Then last week we saw he went to Samaria. And now we know he's going to Galilee where he'll land in Cana once again. So where he started is now where he ends. <clears throat> and... and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee comprise the landmass of historic Israel, but prior to the kingdom being divided. So Israel under David and Solomon, the promised land. He's covering that entire territory in the process of gathering his bride. In Jesus, Yahweh has come to pursue his bride. His bride is the whole people of God, not the fraction that was left at that time. Since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we'll discover that in John 11, then the future is present in him. Remember Martha, Lord, I know that at the resurrection my brother will live. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. And then he, Lazarus come forth and he lives. See, since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the future is present in him. Often we find in the Gospels, what were then future realities that look forward to the day after his death, burial, and resurrection, that things that become true in the book of Acts that were not necessarily of the time that Jesus was here, but wherever Jesus is, they become a present reality. That they're, they're real in him. It may confuse us at times, but when we remember that he is the resurrection and the life, that the future, the then future, was present in him, it helps us keep that clear. And Jesus marched from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and possibly, as we'll see, reaching a Gentile and the royal official, we see a snapshot of a future reality. The book of Acts that goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way through Galilee and southern Judah, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because Christ's reign will encompass all of that, and he will regather God's people from the entire world into his kingdom. Well, that leads to verse 44 and 45. A prophet without honor who is welcomed in Galilee. Let's read 44 and 45 again. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. These two verses have perplexed commentators for literally centuries. You could actually say millennia because... It goes all the way back to at least the 3rd century that we know there's been some uh, confusion uh, over it, trying to deal with it. And, and <clears throat> verse 44, when it tells us that a, a prophet has no honor in his homeland, his hometown, 
uh, fatherland. It sets us up to expect Jesus to be rejected. But instead, we get to the next verse. When he arrives in Galilee, they welcome him. So it seems a bit perplexing. Now, the problem is not that it's unresolvable. It's actually quite easy to resolve it. The question is, which of the resolutions is the one that John intended? You know, it's, it's, it's not a matter of which, which one do I like. You know, oftentimes we'll be talking to somebody about a particular text, and I'll have people say to me, I've, I've heard, <clears throat> you know, in fact, Romans uh, 9 or Romans 11, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, well, I don't like that interpretation of the text. Who cares? Who cares whether or not you like an interpretation of the text? I mean, what does our liking something have to do with it? It shouldn't have anything to do with it. The issue is whether or not it's the true interpretation of the text. And if it's the true one, then if I don't like it, I need to change. Amen? Because I've had to do a lot of that changing in my years, and there's a lot of things I didn't like that I ran into in the Bible, and it wasn't the Bible that needed adjustment. Amen. So, the, the issue here is not... Can it be resolved? Sure, it can be resolved, but, but which of the ways that it's resolved makes the best sense with the context that John may have been intending? So there are three basic ways to resolve this. The, there's a strong minority opinion that holds uh, that, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus in John's gospel, his, his homeland or his hometown or so forth, uh, either means Judea or Jerusalem where his father's house is. So, so the, there's no conflict here. He was rejected in Jerusalem is what they're saying in verse 44. But the Galileans welcomed him. So they, they create that contrast. This view goes back at least to Origen in the 3rd century. Of course, Origen uh, is known for maybe using a little too much imagination in his interpretation of Scripture. Um, and it, Now, it is appealing on a theological level. When I first read it, I'm thinking, boy, that, 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 I like that. But the more I look at the text of John that constantly points out that Jesus is from Galilee or from Nazareth, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't fit with John's overall message, so it, it probably stretches the imagination too much. The majority opinion is that, that Jesus' homeland is Galilee, which sets up a theological point that even though the Galileans in verse 45 appear to welcome Jesus, they're only doing so because they saw the signs and therefore, and this is the theological point that they, they drive home, we are being clued in that it is not a true receptivity. Well, that fits fairly well with the account that follows. A third way to look at it, <clears throat> similar to the second one, but enough different to, that makes a different theological point, that Jesus' homeland is more specifically Nazareth, where he, he was raised, or I'll add the possibility of Nazareth and Capernaum, his original home, Nazareth, and his current home, which John 2 points out where he was living at the time, then, or at least alludes to. So, while this is similar to the previous view, because they are both in Galilee, the theological point shifts. In, in this view, the comment of verse 44, rather than creating a paradox with verse 45, it actually explains why Jesus went right past Nazareth and didn't stop, and stopped in Cana, rather than stopping when he went right by his hometown, he didn't stop there, and why he stopped in Cana but didn't keep going to Capernaum, which is where he was then living. And he stops here. And so it, it, it actually explains more effectively why the Galileans welcomed him and why he went where he did and not to the other places. It also fits well with our story, possibly highlighting the faith of the royal official, uh, who despite being from 
Jesus' hometown in Capernaum still had true faith in Jesus. Additionally, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the other three Gospels, support the idea that Jesus was largely welcomed in Galilee, but not in some of the more specific places, specifically Nazareth and Capernaum. He was not welcome in either of those places. You may remember Jesus being run out of the synagogue in Nazareth, and you may remember that in Capernaum, Jesus said, Woe to you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that had been worked in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained to this day. In other words, the people of Capernaum saw plenty of signs, but they did not believe, unlike these Galileans who did believe because of the signs they saw. I lean toward this third idea, you can probably tell. I can see good support for the second idea, and I think that the first idea that Jesus' hometown and John as Jerusalem is novel but wishful thinking. Um, So once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, according to verse 46. That, That verse introduces two important elements to our story. Jesus enters Cana of Galilee. We're reminded, since many audiences at that time would have only been hearing this gospel shared with them. They would not have been reading it in a book like we do. They can't go back and go, now was that the same place he was? No, they don't have that opportunity. So the audience is reminded, yeah, the the place where he turned water into wine, you know, back there, that, that one. Just to make sure we don't miss that point that he's now back at that same place. Jesus and the disciples have traveled from Cana to Capernaum to Jerusalem, and now from Jerusalem to Judea, then Samaria, and back to Cana without going to Capernaum. The second thing that I think it introduces to our story is that the need that he needs to meet is not in Cana, but it's in Capernaum. Yet he stops in Cana. And there was, the second half of verse 46, a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. But he's in Cana. It seems odd, at least at some level, that Jesus stops in Cana when the need is in Capernaum. But maybe that is why we are told that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. He's he's not welcome there, so he's not going there. Now, who is this royal official? There's a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Who is he? Is he Jewish or is he Gentile? There's a lot of discussion about that and opinions are divided, and the reason opinions are divided is because you cannot definitively give an answer from the text. In other words, he's a royal official. Could be Jewish, could be Gentile. Uh, Some argue that he must be Jewish because it doesn't say he's a Gentile. But you could use the reverse argument. He must be Gentile because it doesn't say he was Jewish. I mean, you know, that doesn't really get you very far. The title, royal official, simply indicates that he worked for the government, most likely for Herod. Herod was an Edomite working for the Romans as a... as a ruler over a region largely populated by Jews. So it must be said that that we can't say for sure, one way or the other, about his nationality. However, I'll just offer that because he stands in the narrative in contrast to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, he's identified by his role with the Roman government, and because of the flow of the story from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and now we add this guy who might possibly be a Gentile, I, I, I lean toward him being a Gentile. I think, I think John is, as it were, painting with an impressionist stroke. You know, I can't quite tell if it's a t- tulip, but it sure looks like a tulip to me. Okay, and, and, and so in this case, I can't say definitively that it's a Gentile, but he sure looks like a Gentile to me. At least I think John wants us to get that possibility in our minds. 
Why is that relevant? I think here's the relevance. The bride which Jesus is pursuing includes not only all those who are given to him in the historic identity of Israel, but Gentiles of other cultures as well. It's another example of the future reality being present in Jesus where he is. But Jesus stops in Cana. He stops short of coming to where the high-ranking official is. Now what? Have you ever felt in your walk with the Lord, have you ever felt that the Lord stopped short of what you needed? Or maybe you haven't accepted Christ. Maybe you don't believe because you feel like, well, if he is God, then he has stopped short. He's not come far enough for me. Well, this official may have felt that way. We don't know. Maybe some of you have never dared to think that, but others may have had these thoughts. And if so, I think this official has something to at least teach us. Whether or not he had those thoughts, I I can't say, but I think he can teach those that may have those kinds of thoughts. Those thoughts that say, Lord, you almost persuade me, but you just stopped short. Let's listen to what he's got to teach us. A man from Capernaum goes to Canaan, verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to to death. What did this man do when he heard that Jesus stopped in Cana? Did, Did he complain? Doesn't Jesus know that all those who are anyone in Galilee live here in Capernaum? Did, did he say, hey, why, why didn't Jesus come here? Is his message not for us? Am I too far gone? Do we not count to him? Wasn't he just over there in Cana for a wedding? Can he come here and help the people in the very town he lives in? He hardly spends any time here anymore. Does he, does he think he's too good for us? He, did, he, he didn't say any of those things. He may or may not have thought some of them. We don't know. But what we do know is what he did do. He went to Jesus. He left his son at home and traveled 15 to 20 miles, which isn't the same as going to Largo or Seminole. No, because you didn't have a car and you didn't have roadways like that. And So this was a day's journey, a, a, a tough day's journey. His son's at home dying. What if his son dies while he's away? It could be too late. I, I want to at least spend the last moments that I have with him. But his son's close to death, and that's kind of permanent. I better do something. There's urgency. It's a priority. The distance would cause many to hesitate. Can I bother him with this, getting him to come all this way? But the significance of it urges him forward. His going to Jesus is a sign of faith. Now, there's an important connection here in verse 45 to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 23, we are told, quote, Many people saw the signs he was performing there at Passover, okay, and believed in his name. Here, we've just been told that many Galileans welcomed Jesus because they had seen the signs he did at Passover in Jerusalem. In other words, everybody goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, including these Galileans, and They saw those signs that were reported that that both people of Jerusalem and people from outside Jerusalem saw in chapter 2 and believed. And so this verse connects us right back to that point that was made in 2.23. But what is it followed by there? It's followed by the fact that Jesus, however, 
didn't entrust himself to those people because why well, he knows everybody and he knows what's in everybody's heart. And so we, we capture that thought here. Now, before you bust all bad on the Galileans or those folks, other folks in Jerusalem who believes because they've seen signs, then you, before you do that, you've got to answer this question. What would you prefer they do? Not believe? I mean, if you see Jesus performing signs, you have but two choices. Choice one, believe. Choice two, not believe. I am not aware of a third alternative. Right? It's, it's either believe or not believe. So, if you think they're bad because they believe just because they saw signs, what would you prefer they did? Not believe? Jesus, as we read a moment ago, gave some serious pronouncements of woe to people who saw signs in Capernaum but did not believe. That's a far worse place to be than believing because you see signs. And given the option, I think I'll go with that's okay. They, they believed in, after seeing signs. <clears throat> the Lord does tell Thomas, remember Thomas, who Jesus had appeared to the other ten um, <clears throat> disciples, but he hadn't appeared uh, to Thomas. Of course, the, the, the women were there as well. But Thomas says, I won't believe unless I put my fingers in the, the scar, you know, the, the holes in his hand and see it myself. And so Jesus appears a week later, the next Sunday, and Thomas sees and he believes and he worships. Now, Jesus does tell him, uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So there is a blessing for those who without seeing believe. That's a, that's a more mature faith. But Jesus did not reject Thomas or his faith just because Thomas needed to see first, did he? No, he receives that worship, and Thomas is one of the disciples, and he goes on to, as tradition tells us, to India to bring the gospel there for the first time. I think the point of John 2, 23 through 25, and therefore the same point here, is that this kind of faith that sees after it, or believes after seeing signs and miracles this kind of faith must be proven and tested before we know whether it's genuine or authentic. We don't know that it isn't authentic, but we cannot necessarily know that it is authentic until it has stood a test. And even if it is authentic and genuine, it must be matured. Do these Galileans have genuine faith? Does the royal official from Capernaum have genuine faith. I mean, after all, that's a town known for its lack of faith. Is his faith mature or immature faith? Well, Jesus not only knows, he is also the one who will perfect genuine but weak faith. He's the one who sees faith, recognizes its weaknesses, and knows exactly how to mature it. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? Rooted in I believe genuine but weak faith, this government official, has brought a prayer request to Jesus. Come, Jesus, help me overcome death for my son. That's essentially what he's saying. <clears throat> Surely Jesus will answer this prayer. Surely Jesus will make haste to answer this prayer. But notice in verse 48 that Jesus, well, he answers harshly. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's important to remember, when you see Jesus doing something that shocks you, don't try to fix Jesus. Just allow the story to keep reading as it does. We can't want to, well, that wasn't really harsh. It was, no, let's just read it as it is. It, frankly, it's a rebuke. 
Jesus is chiding him. So let's look at it and allow it to speak for itself. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. Now, I find it interesting because the last time Jesus was at this same town in Cana, his mother asked him to do something. And you might remember that his response to her was a rebuke also, and it was a bit harsh. What does this concern of yours have to do with me? Well, it is your mom you're talking to. It's also interesting. Verse 48 makes a distinction that we often will miss in English because English is one of those unusual languages that doesn't have two forms of you. We we say you and you. Now, of course, most of us are smart enough to to know, especially if we're Southerners, that you need to say y'all. And I don't know what Northerners do. They probably don't. You know, maybe it's use guys or something like that. I don't know. But... We've, had, we've, we've all sorts of ways that we colloquially have tried to fix that problem with the language, haven't we? It's probably the British fault. But, um, so, so here we are, and, and, and it, it reads, this is, this is the best way to say it so that we capture it all. Therefore, Jesus said to him, singular, unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you, plural, absolutely won't believe. <clears throat> you might say, instead of you, plural, you might say, you all or you people. But it's, it's you, but plural. Have you, have you ever brought your need to Jesus and felt as if he were saying back to you something to this effect? I, all my children ever want is for me to fix their problems. You never come unless there's something in it for you. Can't you just come and worship me and, without bringing some need that you have? Can't you just love me without getting something out of it? Now, have you, ever, have you ever had those doubts start creeping into your head, those thoughts come as you're praying? I, mean, I don't know. If, maybe you haven't. But I bet if you look to your right or left, at least in one of those cases, you'll find somebody who has, if it's not you. And there's a pretty good chance that more than one in three of you have had those thoughts. <clears throat> what do you do? Does it discourage you? Do you withdraw your request? Does it keep you from asking the next time when you have a need? Because I don't want to hear that again. All I ever do. And then you have to ask the question, what in the world is Jesus doing to this man? He's come all the way from Capernaum. He clearly has faith at some level to travel that distance while his son is dying to say, Jesus, come. He must know that you can do something about his dying son. Certainly, the you, plural, when Jesus says, uh, unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will absolutely won't believe. <clears throat> Certainly, that you refers to a group of people bigger than just this father, more than him, singular. Whether Jesus is referring to the Galileans in general, present company included, or whether he's speaking about you, you, you sir, and all your other Capernaums that I didn't come to your town that reject me, That, that, that you won't believe. We, we can't be certain which it is that he's referring to. Either way, however, this father has a decision to make. And his decision is whether or not that's the kind of faith he's going to have, or is he going to have another kind of faith? In other words, am, am I going to have the kind of faith that, that only believes if I see, or can I have faith that believes despite 
how things appear. That's the issue that he has to resolve in his own soul. Am I going to be one of you people that he's referring to? Am I going to be just like the people I come from? Or am I going to be different than that? I may come from an entire town of skeptics, but I have to answer the question for myself, is that how I am going to remain? Maybe your whole family has not believed for this reason or that reason. But something has stirred you, but, you, but you're still not sure whether you're going to believe or not believe in, in, in Christ's word to you this morning. Like this word to him is a challenge to say, well, which is it going to be? What kind of faith are you going to have? A faith that only believes when it sees? Or are you going to have a different, a more mature, a more complete kind of faith? <clears throat> well, this man chooses wisely. For despite Jesus' seeming rebuke, he presses forward. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. <clears throat> it's almost as if he ignored what Jesus said. Come down before my child dies. And just as Jesus' mother didn't back down but continued to trust despite the seeming rejection, so too this government official pays no attention to the seeming rejection from Jesus. And... This seeming rejection matured his faith rather than stifling it. See, Jesus knows what is in a man, and he knows what's in you and me, and he knows exactly what our faith needs to be matured. So he does exactly what it is we need to mature our faith, even if it isn't what we think he ought to do at the moment. When you encounter what seems to be a rejection from Christ, how do you respond? Do you let it cause you to think that he does not care? When you hear questions about always coming with needs, do you back away and stop? Or do you cling to trust in Jesus and keep pressing in? And that leads us to verse 50, <coughs> where, where we see how Jesus both meets the man's need and perfects his faith at the same time. Verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son lives, will live, it's just your son lives. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Do you see the wisdom of God here in Jesus' answer? I mean, this is better than when they're asking Jesus about whether or not to pay temple tax. And he says, just show me the coin, whose image is that, etc. And that's a pretty cool display of wisdom. But this one, this one's better than Solomon. They bring, the two ladies bring the baby and say, it's my son, it's my son. He says, well, you know, bring a sword and cut it in half. And this one's better than that. I think this is one of the most profound displays of God's wisdom in Jesus right here. The man had asked that Jesus come with him. However, had Jesus gone with him, there would have been no requirement for a faith that believed without seeing. There would have been no requirement that the man's faith actually matured. His faith was faith, and it was adequate faith, and Jesus could have answered it, but he would not have grown. <clears throat> he would not have had an opportunity to believe without seeing. However, if Jesus didn't answer, the son would die, and the need would not be met. So how could he both meet the need and require the man to believe without seeing? <laughs> Go, your son lives. By answering as he did, Jesus requires faith in his word without seeing, yet grants the request at the same time. That's impressive. That's wisdom beyond anything we could have dreamed up. In saying go, Jesus is rejecting the man's double request to come with him. 
But in saying your son lives, which is literally what he says, your son lives, as Bruner says, Jesus' sentence apparently shoots across the miles to distant Capernaum and cures a child. The father has to decide if he's going to believe or not. And he clearly decides to believe. How can a spoken word have such power and reach to travel 20 miles to another town and have an effect? Isn't that the very test of faith that we face today as the church? <clears throat> Do we not have to believe in a word that was spoken 2,000 years ago in a very different place, that it is just as powerful and effective today in our place? That what Jesus says in John chapter 6, that he is the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And that, that the flesh counts for nothing, but the words that he speaks, they are spirit and they are life. Do we not have to believe that that promise that we live forever is true? That Jesus' word can shoot into your future and my future to that point of our physical death and declare, though he dies, yet shall he live? Though she dies, yet shall she live? Do we not have that promise? And is this not the same test of faith that we're required to have? And that our faith is required to mature in? Do you believe? Do you go on your way hedging your bet? Maybe stop at the medicine man's house on the way home or go ahead and live as if, you know, this is the only life I've got. But I'm going to go ahead and keep that promise as some sort of fire insurance policy. Or do we go on our way trusting his word, not making other plans, but living in light of the glorious truth, living for eternity and not for this life? See, because how I live will tell everything about what I believe. Will you only believe when the day comes that you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Or will you believe at his word and receive the transforming promise now? How powerful was this promise, this word, which the Father believed without seeing any miracle? How powerful was it? Well, let's find out. Jesus' word goes to Capernaum, reading in verse 51. While he was still on his way, his servant met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to what time his son got better, they said, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that it was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives, your son will live. <clears throat> so he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. There's an emphasis here on the power of Jesus' word, the power of Jesus' promise. <clears throat> and, and you see it by looking at verse 50, 51, and 53. Jesus had said in verse 50, your boy lives. The verb to live shows up 17 times in John's gospel. The noun for life, another 36. It's a prominent theme in this gospel. Three times in John's gospel, this verb is, is used in the third person singular, such as he, she, or it lives. Present tense, third person singular. All three are right here. And all three emphasize a point. First, Jesus says in verse 50, your son lives. Then the servants from the house meet him on the way and declare the words of Jesus, which they weren't there to hear. They repeat almost verbatim, 
your boy lives. The, 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 the word for child or boy, male child, is changed from son. <clears throat> but lives, the same word. Finally, the father inquires about when he started to get better. He knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said, and then he quotes Jesus again, your son lives. The point is clear. Jesus' promise was powerful enough to accomplish it, and the matured or completed faith which his father had because of Jesus was a faith that took Jesus at his word, the word of life. Now, what is the significance, if anything, that it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon or literally the seventh hour? That's how they would talk about time for, <clears throat> in verse 52. Well, aside from confirming, and, and this is an important thing, this is clearly the point, it, that, that it, was, it confirms that the source of healing was the words of Jesus. Jesus said it, that's the same hour he was healed. That's the most important thing. And, <clears throat> but, but in addition to that, I think there are, two other things. Because you may recall that Jesus met the Samaritan woman at noon. This is one o'clock. Different days, but you've got noon, one o'clock, or literally the sixth hour and now the seventh hour. And I think that may bring two things to mind. Most significantly, um, <clears throat> Jesus had set out to find his bride, and at the sixth hour, he finds the Samaritan woman. But six is not a number of perfection or completion. It's an incomplete number in Jewish thinking. Okay? So, Samaria doesn't represent having completed the mission of finding the bride. He still is in process, but seven is the perfect number. And with the addition of both all the boundaries of historic Israel now being covered in this journey, and I believe a Gentile being added, I think the bride is fully represented here now. Additionally, remember that Nicodemus came at night to Jesus, but Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman and now the government official in the full light of day. They have, they have come to the light, and it is now clearly seen that this man's works, his faith, has been brought to fruition in and by God. And that's what Jesus said would happen when we come to the light in John chapter 3. <clears throat> the, the bride of Jesus is, is made up of people in a relationship of faith with Jesus, regardless of one's heritage, background, nationality. The bride of Jesus is, is made up of people in a relationship of faith with Jesus through prayer and his word. Through prayer and his word. This is a relationship of faith. It's, it's a relationship. <clears throat> we pray. He responds by his word. We believe his word comes to pass. But sometimes it looks a little more like this. We pray. He chides us or ignores us from our perspective, how it appears. We pray more. He responds by his word. We believe his word. His word comes to pass. But this, this life of faith is about remaining in him, remaining or abiding in him in a relationship of faith through prayer and his word. That's what being the bride of Jesus is all about. Listen, you know that we, we have a high emphasis and priority here on the word of God, learning the truth of scripture. But if all we do is come together to learn and we go home unaffected by that learning and that we don't spend time with Jesus in prayer, it's like a fella 
learning everything there is about marriage, but never talking to his wife. What in the world good would it do? We learn the word because that's, that's part of that relationship, but we go to him. We call on him. And yes, he speaks to us, and he speaks to us through his word. Does that describe your relationship to Jesus? See, if we're, if we're increasing in knowledge of God's word, but not applying it in the place of fellowship with Christ through prayer, it's a bit like buying fertilizer only to spread it on a parking lot. It doesn't have any value. It needs to find a garden somewhere. Amen? <clears throat> and maybe you're here today and you have not believed in Jesus. And if so, you've not yet experienced the living water which satisfies forever. Nor the living bread which imparts life that can never die. Christ is that living water. Christ is the groom that you need the only one that will ultimately last forever. The spring of living water, the bread of life. Stop digging your own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Come to the well of living water in Christ. See, we, we, we pursue our own cisterns. They can't hold water, but sometimes we think they can. We, well, we wouldn't pursue them if we didn't think they could whether it be intellectual pursuits, the praise of people, people thinking much of us, a, a, a woman or a man that we might be pursuing, money, power, or even happiness. I, I just want to be happy. That's the, the pursuit of our age. Only Christ has living water. Will you refuse to believe unless you see signs, or will you take him at his word? Let me encourage you to take him at his word because when you do, you will taste and he will give you this water from which you will never thirst again. You'll become a part of the bride of Christ, the one married to the only spouse that perpetually and forever satisfies. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give this morning that living water, this afternoon to all those here, Lord, that living water. We all come to you to drink and to keep on drinking because only in you are our souls satisfied. Lord, for those that have never drank deeply, Open their hearts to ask. See, the Lord says to you, if you would but ask, he will give you living water. All you have to do right where you're at right now is ask. Even as we sing this song we're about to sing, ask him for living water, and he will give it to you. Amen. <clears throat>